Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Those passages of Scripture that we had read to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Describe the false brethren and false apostles that Paul had to deal with. They were ministers of Satan, as Paul would describe them. Colossians chapter 2 that was read to us. Men will try to beguile us out of the simplicity of the gospel and put us back under human bondage to all sorts of things and destroy the liberty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 11. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see the controversy that raged between the Jews and the converted Gentiles. We have all of chapter 10 to tell us about God raising up Peter to preach the gospel to the Gentile household of Cornelius. And then Peter had to answer for that in chapter 11 by being called in the carpet in Jerusalem by those that didn't think he should have even gone into the house and eaten with Gentiles, still living by laws of separation from the Old Testament. I hope that you saw that sheet descend from heaven. It had porkers in it. It had barbecue. It had bacon. It had sausage. It had pepperoni for your pizza. It had some creeping things like shrimp. Thanks be to God for giving us some real food. And Peter said, Lord, I've never eaten anything like this. I only go to kosher restaurants. And the Lord said, eat three times. And then the Spirit of God told him, Peter, don't doubt what you're doing. You are doing something I'm directing you to do. Now go to that man's house and preach to him. And Peter went and took with him six brethren, so in the mouth of seven witnesses, every word could be established in Jerusalem, that exactly the order of events. God gave them the Holy Ghost to confirm Peter. And Peter said, since God gave them the Holy Ghost in purifying their hearts by faith, and made no difference between us and them, who was I to withstand God? God had made a choice that though we had been His exclusive people for 1,500 years, that was no longer true. James would wrap up the council in Jerusalem saying, known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. God had always planned to bring in the Gentiles. It was not an afterthought like is taught so commonly today that the church age is an afterthought. It was God's eternal thought according to His eternal purpose, as Ephesians chapter 3 tells us. Thank you, Lord. Brethren, this is a historical chapter that ends with an introduction to Paul's doctrine of justification as he gave it to Peter in a matter of a controversy. When you think back and historically view Galatians 1, Galatians 2, and the book of Galatians, and the book of Romans, and, the book, and Acts 15, and Acts 11, you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the churches of the Gentile came under serious attack and were almost overthrown from our perspective. They weren't almost overthrown from God's perspective, but they were almost overthrown. Paul's about to tell us that he went up to Jerusalem because he feared that he might have run in vain. And any further running on his part would be in vain. The gospel came under attack by Judaizers. Those Jews that wanted to stick in Old Testament ceremonial laws on top of Jesus Christ in order for us Gentiles to be saved. Since we didn't have the right birth certificate, 
They were going to force us under the law of Moses in order to go to heaven. But praise the God of heaven, He sent His Son, and that is the only argument and plea that we need. By the grace of God, we're saved through the precious blood of Jesus Christ and His death for us. The gospel was attacked, and it was defended by the God of heaven through a mighty man that He raised up named Paul. You know, the world wants us to esteem the Council of Nicaea in 323 A.D., overseen by the Emperor of Rome, Constantine. This council wasn't overseen by the Emperor of Rome. It was overseen by the Holy Spirit of God. And what a difference it makes. These men get to the end and they say the Holy Spirit of God is telling us these are the only things we're going to require of you. And when that message came, and I'm trusting that all of you read Acts 15 either last week, last night, or both times, so that you're familiar with what that council accomplished and the joy it caused the Gentiles when they heard the news that they didn't have to be circumcised. As Brother Lou was saying to me last night, you want to know someone that wiped their brow? You want to know someone that was relieved? It was Titus, the poor man. He got hauled into a conference wondering if he was going to have emergency surgery. That's a man who appreciated the truth of God being taught by Paul and confirmed with the Holy Ghost. I love our brother Paul, and we're about to look at him. Do you think Paul knew that Titus wasn't circumcised? Why did Paul go to Jerusalem for a matter of controversy regarding circumcision? Why would he take Titus? Because he took a Gentile preacher test case to put right before the apostles and make the issue very clear. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. And God saved Titus, and he saved you and me. God doesn't care if you're circumcised or not. Right. We had a little boy circumcised this past week in this church. doesn't matter at all in the sight of God. It's up to every parent. It's a matter of Christian liberty. It has nothing to do with your salvation. Right. Thanks be to God for the gospel that we have. Amen. Let's, go, let's look at it here in Galatians chapter 2. Obviously, I can't take very long on each verse. If it's not long enough, you can use the outline that will be on the Internet, or you can ask me any question you want, and I'll try to explain the verses more thoroughly if if you're not satisfied. I'm going to read a verse and give the sense. You know the context, because we did chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. Paul is defending himself against false brethren, false apostles, false teachers coming out of Jerusalem that are trying to teach his Gentile churches, they were too weak and too pitiful to ever start a church themselves. Listen, these men had no ability, no ability and no spirit of God. So they couldn't do a thing themselves. They just raided other men's churches. And Paul unloads on them for that great crime in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he accuses them of taking advantage of things made ready for their hand. Paul is the one that went to Corinth and labored so abundantly. They couldn't do that. They had to follow Paul around the Roman world and take advantage of the churches that he had founded, converted, and was their initial father in the gospel, as he tells the Corinthians. Let me chase a rabbit. This is way, way off the subject. Can I have one minute for a rabbit? Thank you for your permission. There are a group of Baptists called Primitive Baptists, and many of them claim that ministers should not be supported. They got into a wicked tradition in their past 
by overreacting against the ministers of other orders. And so they claim that to be pure, ministers shouldn't be supported. They should work a full-time job. And the argument they use is that Paul made tents to support himself while he preached. That is not true. If you listen to Brother Chris read 2 Corinthians 11, Paul was paid wages while he was at Corinth, which was the place where he made tents with, with Aquila and Priscilla. He took his wages from the church of Philippi. The Macedonians came down and paid him. Were you following those words in 2 Corinthians 11? Don't let anyone tell you anything like that. The Apostle Paul was supported. When Paul worked, it wasn't necessarily because he didn't have any money. He had people supporting him, just like Jesus and the Apostles had people supporting them. The women ministered to Jesus and the Apostles out of their wealth. There was a bag. There was a treasurer. Judas Iscariot was his name. They were supported. I am in a debate at the present time over the folly of that ridiculous argument that ministers shouldn't be supported. The Bible is so plain about that. God hath ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's an ordinance as important as anything else in the New Testament that ministers should be freed up from the cares of entanglement in this life in order to give themselves to the care of the church and the Word of God. Because they're supposed to give themselves wholly to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine, and you can't do that as a weekend preacher. Don't you let anybody tell you that Paul made tents and didn't take wages. He took wages and he called them wages. He was a hireling, if you want to use those kind of words, for a man that takes wages to preach the gospel. Now, I'm going to let me keep continue working on that word hireling. They want to throw words out like that by making God's ministers hirelings. Jesus said, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Amen. They love to throw at me from Matthew chapter 10, I believe it is, where Jesus sent out 70. Freely ye have received, freely give. As if you're supposed to preach the gospel free. That isn't the context of that verse. They were to perform their miracles for free and not charge fees. Do you know how easy it would have been to start charging fees to heal diseases? Because if you go three verses later, Jesus Christ said, the laborer is worthy of his hire. But they are so partial in the Word of God for their foolish and stinking traditions. We can't allow anything like that on any subject. We cannot have man-made rules that go counter to the Word of God. We had that read. I couldn't resist. I'm in a debate. I'm trying to save a young man that's about to be ordained by the primitive Baptists, and I hope that you'll pray for him. Galatians 2. Galatians 2. Then 14 years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. The 14 years after is after his first visit to Jerusalem. It's described in chapter 1. As we're about to find out, Galatians 2 is Acts 15, just from Paul's perspective. This is the council at Jerusalem. Because it's so, because of the context of the issue at stake. The controversy is circumcision, which is exactly what Acts 15 was all about. This is 14 years afterward. I went up again to Jerusalem. Now, if you look at a map, it looks like he went south. 
And so how does he say he went up? I'm just, just, this is just a little word in the Bible. Little word called up. He went up in altitude. Antioch is on the sea coast, the Mediterranean Sea. It's at a much lower altitude than Jerusalem. And though he went south, he went up. Because he went up in altitude to Jerusalem. Fourteen years after, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. If you read Acts 15, you saw that Paul and Barnabas went and other brethren with them. Verse 2, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. I went up by revelation. God told me to go up. I didn't go up because I was getting called on the carpet by apostles in Jerusalem. I went up because God sent me up there by revelation. The Spirit of God led Paul and the church at Antioch to send Paul and Barnabas and other men up there to settle this issue that was about to create great confusion in the church at Antioch by these false teachers that had come from Jerusalem saying they had to be circumcised to be saved. God told me to go up and get this thing settled. And I went up and communicated. I openly displayed and told them everything there was to be told about the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. So this is after his first evangelistic trip where Paul went and preached among the Gentiles. So you know the timing. It's Acts 15. But when I went up, I did not meet with the church at large. I met privately with them that were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Paul did not go up to Jerusalem to find out if what he had been preaching was truth or not. Please. Please. Paul didn't go up and say, Peter, what do you think? Does that pass? Do I get a passing score on my gospel preaching? He had nothing like that in his mind at all. He went up to convert the Jerusalem church to the truth that God had shown him about Gentiles. See, they didn't like Gentiles in the Jerusalem church because they were Jews. They were selfish, nationalistically minded, and Paul had to deal with them his entire ministry. Paul went up to Jerusalem to convert that church and the apostles to the truth of how Gentiles should be treated, lest he had run or should run in vain. If he didn't get that church on his side, that church would overthrow his work by the teachers that would come out of it saying, Jerusalem disagrees with Paul. You don't have to believe that. You need to go back under the law and be circumcised in order to be saved. I hope I'm making it clear enough the great controversy that existed right at this point in time. Paul's efforts would be in vain if the church at Jerusalem decided against him. He didn't go up there to get their approval. He went up there to convert them. But privately to them that were of reputation, if Paul would have tried this in front of the whole church, there would have been a riot. Can I prove that from a Bible? There would have been a riot and Paul was a wise man. Spouting your mouth off in public about religious matters just proves that you're a fool. Wise men do it in private. The Bible says that. A wise man holds it in till afterward, but a fool utters all his mind. Paul knew better. The church at Jerusalem did not like Paul for a couple of reasons. One, Paul spent all his time with Gentiles instead of Jews. And two, he disregarded the law of Moses among those Gentiles. If you doubt me, go read Acts 21 this afternoon and find out that six chapters after the Council of Jerusalem, Paul comes to visit Jerusalem again many years later. 
And the apostles tell him, do you know your reputation among our people here? They don't like you. If you want to help yourself a little bit, then go into the temple and take on a vow and show that you haven't totally disregarded the law of Moses. And Paul went and did it just to help his reputation out a little bit with them while he was in Jerusalem. And that's when he was caught. And that's when he ended up in prison, shipped off to Caesarea, then off to Rome. It would have caused a riot, so he did it in private with them that were of reputation. Now, he doesn't tell us any names yet because he's leading these Galatians readers on for a little while. He just says, some men of reputation, I did it in private and told them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. And what was that gospel? Justification and righteousness to be accepted before God is entirely by the finished work of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing from the law of Moses that can be added to that to help save you. It's entirely by grace through Jesus Christ. Lay hold of that by faith and good works. And you can know that you're one of God's elect and will be accepted by Him in that great day. That was Paul's Gospel. He told these reputable leaders of the church at Jerusalem about that. When he said, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain, it was to get the church at Jerusalem on his side. Because if he didn't, then those false teachers that were already spreading rumors that Jerusalem was opposed to Paul, would have substance for their rumors. Verse 3, But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. I took along an uncircumcised Gentile Greek preacher, but when I met with these men and presented my gospel, he wasn't compelled to be circumcised. Verse 4, And that, the reason circumcision was an issue, And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The reason that there was an issue about circumcision is what you read in Acts 15. Preachers came out of Jerusalem up to Antioch, about 300 miles north into Syria, Paul's home church, Antioch of Syria, and preached that you had to be circumcised to be saved. And that created a great issue over circumcision. So Paul hauls Titus back down there, who's uncircumcised. He doesn't get circumcised because they don't force it. But what we want to learn from verse 4 is, false brethren, unawares, got into the church. There's a lot of false handshakes. A right hand of falsehood, where the heart is not with you. Get used to it. It's in Psalm 144, and every man in the Bible has had to deal with men like that. There are imposters who, through pride and vanity, want to promote their own ideas rather than God's Word. And these men were Jews, were lovers of the law of Moses. And they had crept in unawares. The apostles in Jerusalem did not fully understand the error that they had among some of their people because there was no controversy to expose them. Paul brought the controversy to get them exposed. Because in Jerusalem, they kept most of the Old Testament ceremonial law right along with the New Covenant. God allowed the two things to run side by side for 40 years. It's called the time of Reformation. 
Two covenants ran side by side, and that's what created this difficulty for 40 years. Now, God did put a pretty neat end to it in 70 A.D. There was no altar, no temple, no priesthood, no nothing left. There was no veil. There was nothing. He leveled it to the ground. And it all blew away in dust like a filthy old garment. And the new covenant came in that's to last forever. But until then, these two covenants ran side by side. In Jerusalem, they kept both openly. But Paul was preaching to the Gentile churches, you didn't have to keep the old covenant. And so that's why we have the controversy. And these false teachers were in the church to spy out the liberty. And the liberty here means we don't have to keep the law of God. We're of the Old Testament. We're free from that. We keep the law of the New Testament. That they might bring us into bondage, put us back under the bondage, the slavery of the Old Testament, which never did anyone any good as far as their eternal life whatsoever. Verse 5, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Remember, Paul is writing an epistle to the churches of Galatia, modern Turkey, where there were Gentile churches. And he said, when we encountered these false brethren in Jerusalem, we didn't, we didn't place ourselves in subjection to them. No, not for an hour. Now, for those of you that like Bible words and like thinking, does not for an hour mean that for 55 minutes he was in subjection to them? Or did he mean the same thing we do when we say that, when we use the word minute? I didn't give him a minute of my time. Does that mean we gave him 59 seconds? Or is that a figure of speech that we didn't give him any time by using a small element of time? That's what this means. You know, these people that want to run into Revelation chapter 20 and get all excited about 1,000 years, why don't they run into the rest of the book and find out the use of the word 10 days and the use of the word hour and see if they want to be as literal in those places? That's just a sideline. But it's something, you better read every word of God. There's lessons in every single verse. I'm not giving them all to you. I'm tithing the chapter for the, for your prophet. To whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Thank God for ministers like Paul in verse five that said we wouldn't listen to those guys at all. We didn't submit to them at all. They were false brethren. He calls them names. He names He names them for their false doctrine in this place and tells them I encountered them even in Jerusalem. Verse 6. But of these who seem to be somewhat, (laughs) this is his leading the Galatians on. He's called them of reputation in verse 2. Here it's, but of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. I had a conference with those who seemed to be pretty important in Jerusalem. But in our conference, after I had communicated to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles, they didn't add a single thing to me. They didn't say I was wrong in a single point. I didn't have a single thing to add to the doctrine of salvation that I had preached among the Gentiles. That's what the last four words of that verse mean. They added nothing to me. They did not take my gospel and say, Now, Paul, 
you also have to teach circumcision and, and such and such. No, they didn't. Somebody might say, well, they did add four things from Acts 15. Those four things didn't have a thing to do with salvation. Those four things had to do with keeping Jews happy. Fornication, obviously, is a sin against God, but strangled meat and things offered to idols. Just a few years later, Paul's writing the Corinthians and saying, it's okay if you eat meat offered to idols. That was just a temporary measure by the council at Jerusalem to make peace between Jews and Gentiles, as you can tell by reading Paul's other writings. Verse 6. I love what's in parentheses, and this is what we all ought to believe. Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. Paul didn't care about these people that seemed to be these men, these leaders of the church of Jerusalem that seemed to be somewhat in conference. He wasn't impressed by any man's reputation because he'd already met the only man that counted, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus that gave the gospel that is preached to Gentiles from this day to our day. Don't think that this kind of a controversy is entirely dead. The worldwide church of God still wants to take believers in the 20th century, 21st century, the year 2006, back under the law of Moses. They still want to keep the feast days. Unbelievable. The Seventh-day Adventists want to take you back under the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament. They want to take you back under the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Paul said they didn't add anything to me. Paul never taught Old Testament dietary laws. He said one man can eat herbs, another man can eat meat, and I don't care, and God doesn't care. And neither of them should condemn the other, because it doesn't matter. No fear of man in the Apostle Paul. Thanks be to God. Whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. But those men that seemed to be important in Jerusalem didn't add a thing to Paul's Gospel. Verse 7, But contrary-wise, instead of adding anything to Paul's Gospel... But contrarywise, so far were they from adding anything to his gospel, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. Keep, I'm going to jump a verse. We'll come back to it. Verse 9, And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. So far from saying, Paul, you're wrong, you haven't been preaching the full gospel because you need to add some elements from Moses' law. So far from that, which they didn't do, they did not add anything to Paul's gospel, they gave Paul the right hand of fellowship and said, obviously, you're our equal with the Gentiles. We'll keep preaching to the Jews, you go preach to the Gentiles. I got full approval. There is full agreement between Jerusalem and the men of reputation that seem to be somewhat in that city and with what I preach. Verse 7, But contrarywise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me, as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. They could look at Peter's life and hear Peter's testimony. They could look at Paul's life and hear Paul's testimony and know that God made choice of Peter to be the leader of the preaching to the Jews and that God had chosen Paul to be the leader of the preaching to the Gentiles. What's in parentheses in verse 8? For he that wrought effectually in Peter to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. 
there was plenty of divine evidence that God approved of Peter being the leader to the Jews. Plenty of divine evidence that God approved of Paul being the leading preacher and the apostle to the Gentiles. How they received their gospel. The power they had in miracles. And the success they had in their preaching. Think about the miracles. How could Peter heal? What was the greatest example in the book of Acts of Peter's healing? He could heal by his shadow. Paul could heal by his hankies. Both of those were very impressive. Both of those shows God's approval of them. And so that's what that verse there in parentheses is saying. So far from adding anything to my gospel, they gave me full approval and they recognized that God had chosen me to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, these men that Paul hasn't referred to at all certainly included these three men and may have only been these three men. He's just alluding to them until he gets right here to this point and he drops on the Galatians after he's explained the group that I met with in private didn't circumcise Titus even though they knew he was uncircumcised. They didn't add a single thing to my gospel. And they understood and could see clearly that I had the same authority from God to preach to Gentiles as Peter did to the Jews. And then he tells us who they were or at least who three of them were. And when James, Cephas, and John, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. They seemed to be pillars. Now, Paul hasn't been disrespectful at all to these apostles. He's just leading these Galatians along because he wants to make a point before he drops the names. And so he says, who seem to be important, and he doesn't tell very much more about them until he gets right here. He's not being disrespectful. If you understand the reading and the rhetoric that he's using here to persuade the Galatians to understand the authority that he had in Jesus Christ. And here's where, when it says they perceived the grace that was given unto me, that grace was not the grace of salvation. That grace was the grace of the apostleship. Back to Galatians chapter 1 when he called me by his grace. That's the grace of his ministry that's under issue here. It's not his whether he's saved or not. It's whether he's an apostle of Jesus Christ or not. And it says they gave me the right hand of fellowship. So we have the right hand of fellowship in the Bible. Now, it isn't a requirement for joining the church, although we use it when someone joins our church because it's how we show our agreement, our affection, and our acceptance with someone, just like Peter, James, and John showed their affection and acceptance and approval and agreement with the Apostle Paul by a right hand of fellowship. There's that right hand. I hope that every time we take a brother or a sister's right hand, that there is a pure heart of agreement in Jesus Christ when we do that. There are brethren that we will meet that when they take your hand, it is the lying hand of an enemy. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They will show public affection, but their heart isn't in it. Jesus had to deal with that with Judas. Paul had to deal with it with false brethren. David had it in his life. Moses had it in his life. It's always true. Every church has false brethren creep into it unawares. When you look through the New Testament, we see false brethren in many, many churches. The Apostle Paul told the elders of Ephesus when he left them for the last time, For there shall arise men from among you, 
that will seek to lead away disciples after themselves instead of Jesus Christ. That right hand, let it always be pure and true and honest and sincere when it's shown among us. They didn't add a single thing to Paul. Now he tacks on one little P.S. down here in verse 10. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. The only thing, the only thing these apostles even suggested to me that I ought to remember is to take care of the poor in Jerusalem. And Paul said I was already forward to do that. And if you go back to Acts and back up from Acts 15 to 14 to 13 to 12 to 11, you'll find a prophet coming down from Jerusalem to Antioch named Agabus who told about a famine in Judea. And Paul and Barnabas had already taken a money trip up to Jerusalem from in Acts chapter 11. Now, Paul doesn't mention it in his timeline because it wasn't an important visit there. He only went as a messenger to provide things honest in the sight of all men by carrying that gift. So Paul was already doing that. Verse 11, we jump to another event on Paul's timeline. This is after the Council of Jerusalem. Did you hear, Peter, in Acts 15? Did you read Acts 15? Who stood up first and unloaded against those Pharisees that were saying you had to keep the law of Moses? It was Simeon. Peter stood up and blasted them. God made choice among all of us that it was me that would go to the Gentiles first, Peter said. I went to Cornelius. You men didn't go to Cornelius. I had the vision from God. I watched the Holy Ghost fall on them as on us at the beginning. I saw that God put no difference between us and them. I saw that we shall be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as they. He put the Jews secondary to the Gentiles, seeing that they had been saved by pure grace of God without any works of the law. That's in Acts 15. Peter stood up first and unloaded. And that is the consequence of Paul going in private and getting the leadership confirmed. Because you know what? You know what Paul said? When Paul had his opportunity to speak at the Council of Jerusalem, you know what it says he talked about? His miracles. He already had Peter and James on his side. And then James said, here's the conclusion. Here's the sentence that we're going to give the Gentiles. And he gave it. And it was written down and it was sent by Paul, the hands of Paul and Barnabas, Judas and Silas, out to the churches of the Gentiles. Peter was so strong. Our brother John Fisher read to us today from Acts chapter 11. Peter was called into question by the leadership in Jerusalem, and he was so strong. He said, what could I do to resist God? It was obviously a work of God. Now, how many of you want to bark against that? And they all glorified God that it had to have been his work. Peter was so strong. God help us to be more like Paul than Peter in this matter. Verse 11. But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed. I didn't take him aside for a private meeting because there was no opportunity, reason, or reason for a private meeting. Peter did what he did in public, and Peter almost overthrew the Gentile church in Antioch, and so I withstood him to his face. Here is an apostle that earnestly contended for the faith once delivered to the saints and wasn't even going to let the Apostle Peter, a personal friend and companion of the Lord Jesus Christ, stop him in defending the gospel that we believe today. 
Verse 12. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. Let's grab that word fear. The book of Proverbs 29-25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. You will trap yourself if you are afraid of men. You will trap yourself. You will snare your feet. You will hinder yourself if you're afraid of men. There's only one being we want to be afraid of, and that's the God of heaven. And if you say to me, but what if they try to kill you? Jesus said, fear not them which kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. Fear him which after he hath killed the body, hath power to cast your body and your soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. What a difference. Man can't do anything. God can do everything to your soul and your body. So we should only fear him. That's what Jesus said, Luke 12, 4 and 5. It tells us why Peter did this. He was afraid of men. It says that certain came from James. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. The certain coming from James must have been men at a higher level. Teachers, false prophets, false apostles like we had read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He was afraid. Before these men came, Peter had taken a trip up to Antioch to Paul's home church. And there's Peter and Paul together. They're ordering pepperoni pizza, ham, sausage, bacon, they're getting all the goodies on their pizzas. They're having eggs and bacon for breakfast in the morning. And Peter is just sitting there rejoicing in the good life with Gentiles and eating some real food. Peter's having a great time. And then here come these false teachers out of Jerusalem that are Jews and that still stand under Jewish ceremonial law by choice, which was their right, except it wasn't their right to try to press it on the Gentiles. And when Peter saw them... He was afraid. He withdrew himself from the Gentiles. Oh, no more pizza for me. And he would only eat kosher food. And I'm just using words to help you understand this in very simple terms. He withdrew himself in order to eat with those Jews that came down from James. He wouldn't even associate with the Gentiles. The church in Antioch, the home church of New Testament evangelism to us, was on the verge of being destroyed. The second time. The first time was Acts 15. This is a second event. And it's Peter that's the cause. And he's doing it in public. And it says in verse 13, And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him. That's the other Jews that were already in the church at Antioch. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. Barnabas was a Jew. And the other Jews that were at Antioch, along with Paul, it wasn't all Gentiles, it was mostly Gentiles because it was in Syria. They were carried away with this hypocrisy by Peter and even Barnabas. Barnabas, who had gone with Paul on that first preaching trip, he knew the gospel. He had preached the gospel with Paul. They were led away by that hypocrisy of a leader. A, a leader, a pastor, a prophet, an apostle, if he's false, if he's a hypocrite, he can lead many people astray. Remember 1 Timothy 4.16, it's a warning to ministers, and so maybe you don't care very much about it. But it says, take heed unto the doctrine, and take heed unto yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, those two things. Taking heed to yourself and to the doctrine, for in doing so, you will both save yourself and them that hear thee. 
A pastor that gets into carnal Christianity, not taking heed to himself, or a pastor that gets into false doctrine, not taking heed to the truth, will lead a church astray. And that's why most churches are astray, because a pastor led them astray, either in false doctrine or in hypocritical, carnal Christian living. And here, Peter is in a doctrinal heresy and hypocrisy, and he's leading these Jews astray. And so the church is being severely threatened. Verse 14, But when I saw, and this is Paul writing to churches across the Mediterranean Sea, telling them what he did in his own home church when Peter came there and played the hypocrite in a matter of doctrine. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? Peter, before these people came, you were eating with the Gentiles. Anything you could get your hands on. You weren't acting like a Jew at all. Now they're here. And you're making such a distinct difference in your conduct that you're compelling the Gentiles by your example to start living like Jews. This is in public before them all. Paul blasts them. This is a very sharp rebuke of Peter for his fear of men and being a hypocrite in this matter. That's a question mark that ends verse 14. And this is the kind of pastors that we want to pray for God to raise up in every place. And if there's pastors already raised up that are weak-kneed and soft-faced, then we need to pray for God to make them as strong as the Apostle Paul. When I saw that they did not walk uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I unloaded against the greatest preacher of them all, in public before them all. We are in a warfare for the truth. The Bible says we are to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul said he had fought a good fight and he told Timothy to fight a good fight of faith. We are at war. The devil hates the truth. And most of the Christian world hates the truth. They have turned their ears away from the truth and are turned unto fables. And we have got to make war against that. And look at this. Public, public rebuke of the Apostle Peter. There wasn't time to take him aside privately. And it wouldn't have been as effective to stop him in his tracks in front of everyone that he was misleading was what Paul chose to do and God blessed him in it. Now look at his argument, verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Peter, we are Jews by nature. We have been born Jews. We have been trained as Jews. We know the law better than anyone else. We know the law far better than these Gentile sinners. He's using language that Jews understood. He is not saying Jews are sinless and Gentiles are sinners. He's saying from a Jewish standpoint, they viewed the Jews as sinners. Ignorant sinners, without law, profane in the world. 
But we who are Jews by nature, we know that the law can't justify us. We know that the law doesn't justify anyone. Peter, we've believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faith of Christ. We know that the law can't justify anyone. Why in the world would you put it back on Gentiles when even we Jews by nature know that it can't justify us? That's the, that's the, the logic of verses 15 and 16 and what Paul is condemning Peter for. We are Jews and we know the law of God and we know it can't save us. Now it says in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Who knows that? Paul, Peter, and other Jewish leaders that were fully converted by the gospel of Christ. They knew that their law could not justify men. We know that justification is based on the faith of Jesus Christ. Now if you have a New King James Version or any other version, it's going to say that we are justified by faith in Christ. And it's going to change the of to in. It's going to lose the definite article the. We understand this verse to teach that we are justified purely by the work of Jesus Christ because the rest of the Bible teaches us that. The words, the faith of Christ, do not prove that that is Christ's faith in God. Those words are insufficient to prove the point by themselves. Because you can go to places like James chapter 2 and verse 1 where it speaks of the faith of Jesus Christ. It's not talking about Jesus Christ's faith in anything. It's talking about the religion of Jesus Christ. And I really don't care what position a man takes on the words, the faith of Jesus Christ, because in either case, it's not your faith in Christ. It's either Christ's faith in God or the religion of Jesus Christ, which is God's gift of eternal life by grace through Christ's work alone. Either way, the New King James Version is wrong. But the position we take is that this is Jesus Christ's faith in God because it was the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and His obedience to God that is the basis for our justification. It was Jesus that trusted in God. It was Jesus that pleased God every day of His life. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. It was the Lord Jesus Christ's faith in God that even while He was expiring on the cross, after He had said, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He said, Into Thy hands I commend My Spirit. He trusted God every inch of the way through His life. He was full of faith. Isaiah 53 tells me that I am justified by the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not my knowledge of Him. That's Jesus Christ's knowledge of God and what He did to save me by His faithful obedience. We believe that as we were made sinners by the disobedience of one, the first Adam, we were made righteous by the obedience of one, the second Adam, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we take Galatians 2.16. We have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by the faith of Christ. Jesus Christ's faith secured everlasting righteousness for all of God's elect. Period. We lay hold of that and claim that for ourselves and give ourselves a good foundation against the time to come by believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and our only hope of justification. Those are Bible words. Laying hold of eternal life and laying up in store a good foundation against the time to come. And do you know where those words are used? I've given this verse to you many times. They're used in 1 Timothy 6 about giving money to the poor. Now, do you think giving money to the poor is the way you buy yourself into heaven? Or is giving money to the poor 
one of the evidences of a person that's already got eternal life and is one of God's elect and a born-again child of God. Faith is the same thing. Faith by itself means nothing. Means nothing. Faith by itself means nothing. Do you remember what we just studied last Sunday? Add to your faith virtue. Add to your virtue knowledge. Faith by itself is just a starting point that God gives us when He regenerates us. He gives us faith, and we're to add to that faith the good works that make faith real. That's what we. That's verses 15 and 16. Paul's rebuke of Peter runs from verse 14 all the way down to the end of the chapter. There's no place in here where he stops and turns over to the Gentiles. He turns to the Gentiles in the first verse of chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. He jumps from Peter over to the Galatians. So he's just going to take Peter apart right here, and he is because this is a matter of doctrine. Much more could be said about that 16th verse. We could go into more detail about being saved by the faith of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ's faithfulness in pleasing God, but I hope enough has been said, and enough has been said before. Verse 17, obscure wording. Verse 17, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? If you were to hand that verse to me on a 3 by 5 card out of its context, I would say that it might be talking about carnal Christianity. If we're trying to be justified by Jesus Christ and we end up living a carnal or sinful life, does that make Jesus Christ a minister of sin? Is His religion a minister of sinful living? But see, context is our master, and we are its slave. Paul would not have jumped jumped all the way from a Jewish perspective of the law for justification way out into left field to start talking about carnal Christianity. You say, well, what was he talking about here? What kind of sinners is he referring to? Jump ahead and see if the context ahead doesn't help. Verse 18, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. You say, well, that helps me a little bit. If I build again the things which I destroyed... We destroyed the law of Moses as a means for salvation by preaching Jesus Christ. Peter, if we go back and try to add the law of Moses and build it back up as part of the means for justification, we make ourselves transgressors. He's not talking about carnal Christianity here. He's not not answering an objection against free justification by being antinomianism that people live any way they want if we're freely justified by Christ. What he's doing is arguing with Peter about a Jewish perspective of the law. Peter, if we go build that law back up again that we tore down through the gospel of Christ, we make ourselves transgressors. You see, I see it. I see it. Men like trees walking. Okay? How about jumping ahead one more verse? For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Now I hope you see men walking. I am dead to the law through Jesus Christ. He is still following a law argument from a Jewish perspective. Verse 17, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid! If, Peter, we know as Jews that the law can't justify us at all, and we are believing on Jesus Christ to be justified by the faith of Christ, If while we're doing that, we allow anyone else to accuse us, 
Jews, the ones that came from James, or if we build that law up again at all as a means of justification, we make ourselves sinners. Does that mean Jesus Christ's religion is a religion of sin and condemnation? God forbid. Any resurrection of the law and any addition of the law with Jesus Christ and the grace of God makes Jesus Christ's death of no value. He's going to teach that plainly in chapter 5. If you let the law creep back in at all, Peter, while we're trying to be justified by Christ, we're going to be found as sinners because the law is going to condemn us as sinners. Is therefore Jesus Christ the minister of sin? Is Jesus Christ's gospel and His work on the cross insufficient? And is it going to leave us sinners? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. I love Paul. At this point, he's been hard enough on Peter. He shifts the argument from Peter to himself. Notice the transfer. This is, this is part of rhetoric. You know, of course we don't learn that in school. All we get is reading, writing, and arithmetic, and no rhetoric or religion. And it's a shame, but that's, a, that's an argument for another time. Rhetoric is the ability to persuade men by speech. And Paul was a master at it. What he does right here by shifting to the first person, personal pronoun about himself, verse 18, for if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He's transferring the argument against Peter to himself. It's just a wise maneuver to sell it a little more gently. Paul wasn't building anything up to make himself a transgressor. Peter was the one that was building up the law of Moses again and making himself a transgressor. Just understand the, diff- the, the shift there in pronouns. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor, Peter. If I add any of the law to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, I end up being a sinner because the law condemns me because we know that nobody can be justified by the law. As he said in verse 16, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Peter! Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly and died under the penalty of the law. I'm dead to the law. Go read Romans 6, all the whole chapter. Paul follows the same argument in Romans chapter 6. He's dead to the law because Jesus Christ was punished with the penalty of the law after living a perfect life according to the law. The law has no more claim against me, Peter. It's gone. Jesus Christ killed it. I through the law, I'm dead through the law. Jesus Christ kept the law. Jesus Christ died under the law. I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I have been totally freed from that bondage of sin and condemnation. I can just live all out for God because He has saved me through the work of Jesus Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Same thought. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Though I am dead legally to that law because I was crucified with Jesus Christ, I still have a vital and practical life in Christ. Now I know that some of you love Galatians 2.20 and it's a worth, it's a verse worth loving. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. All that law of Moses has been put to death for me and I can live to God in total liberty and joy and thanksgiving and zeal for all that He's done for me. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but Christ liveth in me. It isn't really my own life. It's not really my own strength. It's not really my own personality. 
I have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in me that gives me the strength for this new life that I have in Christ. I am not under the do or die of the Old Testament. I'm under the done and live of the New Testament with the Spirit of life of Jesus Christ in me. Christ is in me. He promised He would be in His believers. And Paul here lays claim to that. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I. I'm not living by myself. But Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ that gave Him total victory over this world, over every temptation that He faced, and the full approval of His Father has been transferred. That strength is inside Paul by the Spirit of Jesus Christ being in Paul. All that Jesus Christ accomplished is in Paul with the strength. That's why you can say in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Because the Spirit of Christ was in Paul, and the strength that Paul now had had been purchased by Jesus Christ's faithfulness to God in every aspect of his life. And that power and accomplished victory was now in Paul by grace through Christ and His Spirit. And He tacks on the end about the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus has already died for my sins under the law. That law doesn't do a thing for me. And it can't. And for me to even go back toward it is to show an ungrateful spirit for all that Jesus did on my behalf. Verse 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God. What does He really mean by those words? Peter, Stop frustrating the grace of God. It's, it's a rhetorical argument. Paul wasn't frustrating the grace of God. Paul loved the grace of God. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Now I hope verses 15 through 21 all make sense. He never left the point to deal with carnal Christianity or lascivious living after you claim to be justified by Christ. His whole argument is, if we add any of the law back, Peter, we make ourselves sinners, and Jesus Christ's religion becomes a religion of sin and condemnation. And we both know that is not true. He loved us and gave himself for us, and I am not going to frustrate the grace of God, and I don't want you to frustrate the grace of God. Every one of you in here have heard ministers frustrate the grace of God. God wants to save everyone here. I'm speaking as a fool for ministers you've heard before. God wants to save everyone here. He's done all that He can do. He's done everything that needs to be done. All you have to do. And then they want you to come forward and do something in order to get saved. And they frustrate the grace of God. I have no grace to frustrate this morning. I have grace to tell you it's a completed transaction through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, He promised eternal life before the world began and not a single one for whom Christ died shall lose that eternal life. You lay hold of it by faith. Add to that faith virtue. Add to that virtue knowledge. To that knowledge, patience, temperance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. And if you do these things, you'll make your calling and election sure. You can lay hold of it and make it sure by faith in all those things. You don't make it effective 
by all those things, you make it sure to yourself. This is the grace of God. The Apostle Paul stood up and opposed Peter, saved the church at Antioch, saved the churches of Galatia, and saved us to the pure preaching of unadulterated grace. We have no frustrated grace here because there were men like Paul that fought for it. May God bless us to fight as faithfully for pure grace and free grace in our salvation. This was primarily against the law of Moses. Today we fight other enemies. But I do want to remind you that when you run in to the Worldwide Church of God or the Seventh-day Adventists or others, they try to get us back under that Old Testament. Brethren, my first sentence to any one of them that write me now is, I am a New Testament Christian. Stop trying to take me back under the law. Thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul. Brethren, the the gospel of Jesus Christ that we believe in this church was delivered from a great controversy in the first century, and you just read about it and heard about it. There are going to be false brethren and false teachers in every church. Saints must hold doctrine tenaciously. The apostle of the Gentiles who was taught directly by Jesus Christ was not inferior to any others. They gave him the right hand of fellowship and said, Brother, we'll limit our ministries to a couple million in Judea. You can take on the rest of the world. He did. He turned the world upside down. His enemies said, The wisdom of Paul by using a private conference, by taking a test case with him, and by fearing no man is incredible prudence and wisdom for all of us. When doctrine is threatened publicly, there's no other option but for a minister to rebuke it publicly. And Paul did that. Even the best of men have feet of clay, which in Peter's case showed up by hypocrisy because of his fear of men. The ministers of Jesus Christ need to follow Paul's example to name sin and sinners when it appears. The true doctrine of Jesus Christ depends on His work alone without any addition to the law or anything else. Our lives in Christ are based on His finished work, His indwelling Spirit, and His glorious example of pleasing His Father in everything He did because He was a man full of faith His entire life. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's our advocate as was prayed before I began preaching. He's our high priest. He's our counselor. He's our mediator. We need no other argument or plea. Don't take anything to the throne of God. When we meet Him shortly, Jesus Christ will be there to take the only argument and plea you need, His shed blood and perfect righteousness, even measured by the law. May Jesus Christ be praised.